G'day, and welcome to another episode of the Adventures on the Road podcast, proudly brought to you by Avan to Hire. I'm Shane, your host. Now let's get on the road. I've got with me Rob from Heritage Estate Wineries, who's going to talk to us about being a new immigrant to the Granite Belt and talk to us about wine. Morning, Rob. Good morning. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm very well, thanks, Rob. So tell us about being a new immigrant. Well, that's an interesting thing. A lot of people say in an area like this that it takes 30 years to become a local. That may well be true, but we've certainly been well accepted and, and we're really enjoying the collegiate sort of life with our winemaking colleagues and the community in general. Uh, we found it very easy to settle in. Okay, so tell us a, l- a little bit about the winery. Heritage Estate's been going for about 30 years. Uh, our oldest vines are 60 years old, which were planted by Dick DeLuca, one of the founding fathers of the wine industry in Queensland. We inhabit a, an old apple store that was converted over 29 years ago using 100-year-old bricks from down the road at the Dalveen Brickworks, uh, and it has some marvellous old antique furniture right next door to a 30-year-old vineyard where we produce most of our white wines. Our red wines are produced a little further south in the Ballandine Valley, uh, where it's a little warmer, a little rockier, and uh, better for our reds. Uh, And I think the the fact that we have the high altitude, 960 metre white vineyards, and the slightly lower 800 odd metre red vineyards, uh, is why we're actually doing so well on the national stage. Now, this is something I think um, a lot of people from other parts of Australia might not realise, um, is that the Granite Belt is actually a really good area for growing wine grapes, isn't it? Absolutely. I went to a vineyard walk just a couple of weeks ago and the expert that was there said that, in his opinion, the best place to grow grapes is an elevated desert with water because then you're actually in control of the nutrients and the water. We are a low-yield area, so typically we only produce a couple of tonnes, maybe three tonnes per acre, and that means our berries are very intense and we produce some really uh, flavoursome wines. Part of the advantage of being in, in the right area to uh, produce good wine, you've actually won some fairly prestigious awards, haven't you? Oh, yes. The latest and the one most widely known is the James Halliday Wine Companion, which is published each year. And if you look in the 2020 edition, we submitted nine wines, all of which are listed. Three of them scored 95 points out of 100, which well and truly puts them on the national stage. And for the Fiano, which is a white, to score 95 is quite remarkable. So yes, we're producing some brilliant wines and, and hats off to John Handy, our winemaker, who has been there for 15 years and continues to work with us. Yes, it's a collaboration of effort, isn't it, in a winery. There may not be a huge staff of people, but there's definitely a group of dedicated people who all work together to produce a great product. Oh, absolutely. The, the quality of the wine starts from the very beginning, uh, from the growing of the grapes. You cannot make good wine out of poor grapes. So your viticulturist is, is essential. Uh, and it will surprise many people, as you've just said, to find uh, that Queensland has this wine growing area. Uh, and the reason we have, as I said before, is because we are elevated and we're cool climate. In fact, I believe that last year, because of the heat waves down south, we were something like the third coolest wine growing region uh, in Australia, behind the Margaret River and, and Tasmania. Uh, that allows our berries to hang on a little longer and allows us to get a little bit more uh, flavour into the grapes. 
what can people expect when they come to visit your winery? What's waiting for them? As with uh, all Granite Belt wineries, we're, we're quite small. So you'll be talking to owners, grape growers, winemakers, uh, the real people who are involved in the industry. So you'll have a very real experience. Uh, we have a lovely cellar door full of antiques, including the, the table that the uh, Queensland Government was formed around in 1859. And then on top of that, we regularly sample around about 12 to 13, depends on the season, depends what we've got in stock, uh, of some fa- fabulous holiday-rated wines. Is there accommodation available at your winery at all? Yep. For the lucky few, we have a little cabin that was built in 1859. Uh, it has... Uh, Red cedar-lined walls, 12-foot-high ceilings, and it was originally the, the accommodation quarters from an old outstation. Uh, so that's just for a lucky couple. But around the region, there are many wineries that, that have cabins, allowing you to stay near the winery and in the vineyard, uh, and then around town, some excellent motels and guest houses. And, of course, obviously people could sample a wine and go, oh, I really like that one. I'll take uh, a carton of that one, please. Uh, and if uh, carrying the box of wine around for the next few weeks on the caravanning odyssey is too much, that we can uh, we can ship it for you as well. Excellent. All right. Now, have you got any events coming up in the foreseeable future? Uh, certainly do. We have two events we run. One is uh, run about four times a year. Terry Wells, our local jazz vocalist, has a fabulous voice, sets up in the corner, and we serve some, some delicious uh, chef-made food. About 100, 120 people normally turn up. Uh, good food, good music, good wine for a Sunday afternoon. What could possibly go wrong? That's on the 1st of December. Uh, and if you can't make that one, we, we have a couple of local musos who turn up about every four weeks. We call it Lazy Sunday Afternoon. It's lazy for everybody except me. And we, uh, we produce some, some good casual food, some great music, and once again, some, some nice wines and an occasional beer. So that's another good way to spend a Sunday afternoon. So roughly how many different wineries are there in the area, do you think, Rob? Um, Numbers seem to vary. It's somewhere between 30 and 50. Some people um, are vineyards that produce grapes only. uh, And normally there would be 20 to 30 cellar doors open at any one time. I just had a bit of a thought, Rob, and I was thinking, when when you're towing a caravan, sometimes, you know, you're... You're going through a town like Stanthorpe on your way somewhere else and you'd want to perhaps just grab a couple of good bottles of wine to have for uh, the next couple of days. How would they be just popping in? Have you, have you got anywhere for yeah, them? To- absolutely. We've, we've got two cellar doors on the Granite Belt. One is right on the highway. It's a converted 100-year-old Catholic church. Uh, and it has a, a Catholic church? A Catholic church. And ah, so the wine is truly blessed then in that case. Need I say more? <laughs> uh, and that has a nice big uh, uh, turnaround, so it's very easy to pull a van in and, and, and drive out again with easy access on and off the highway. Or the main cellar door also has a very large, easy access, so uh, brilliantly easy places to pull in, and you're, you're always welcome for you know, a few minutes or an hour. It depends how long you want to stay. Okay, so if people want to find out more about the Heritage Estate Winery, do you have a, a website? We do indeed. That's www.heritageestate.com. Excellent. Well, Rob, I want to thank you for your time and I look forward to uh, enjoying some of the the music in December. Excellent. We'll look forward to seeing you then and look forward to seeing anyone listening to this who'd like to come along. Thanks for that, Rob. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Now I'm back with Glenn from Barefoot Fishing Safaris in the Northern Territory. G'day, Shane. Now, 
There's a name that I've heard of a place near Darwin that's always intrigued my interest, and I'm going to throw it out there to you, Humpty Doo. So Humpty Doo really is a is a famous sort of a place, and I think early on it was for, maybe for the wrong reasons a little bit. It was a bit of a rough and tumble sort of, the, the main pub there on the Arnhem Highway was, was a bit of a rough sort of a joint, and they still just hose it out every morning now. It's concrete and, um, and big bar, a big... Um, sort of uh, fabricated steel gates and um, they just hose it out every morning and open the gates up and let everyone go again. But it's, it's actually become quite quite funky and trendy now as well as sort of retaining that outback sort of style and you can get a great feed there and, and uh, the bikies are friendly these days. And, they, um, yeah, they uh, it's a very busy place. They have live band there on a Sunday Arvo and it's a shame they don't have him anymore, but there used to be an old buffalo there that, that used to love drinking a schooner over the bar with people. And yeah, there's some famous photos of blokes riding horses into the bar and all sorts of stuff. So, so I think anyone who's spent a bit of time in Darwin's had a couple of wild nights at Dundee. You know, it's a bit of a ride at something um, It's a bit of a ride of passage. <laughs> so they used to have a buffalo that would have a schooner at the bar. Yeah, yeah, he's a real friendly old buffalo, and he, he, they reckon he'd scull a Darwin stubby as well, and we just talked about it being two litres, but yeah, I saw him in there um, sculling a schooner of beer, and yeah, I don't know what he died from, but you wouldn't think he would be from good health. I reckon he'd have been pretty good pickled beef, wouldn't he? Yeah, he might have been too, I think, yeah. And there's another one, like touching back onto the Crocodile Dundee stuff, if you like heading sort of to that south and west region down around that peninsula way, you, you'll come through um, the Stewart Highway as you come up from south. You, you come through um, the township of Adelaide River, and it's a beautiful town, great, really uh, full of World War II history. It was a big base there, and, of course, they got bombed and stuff like the rest of the the place did um, by the Japanese in the war. But, but also that's one of the things that people don't know about it is that the inside bar scenes from that first Crocodile Dundee movie were shot in there, and and the old buffalo that that Nick sends to sleep out in the out in the bush there with his magic trick, he's actually mounted in the in the front bar in the 303 bar at Adelaide River Town there. So it's a, it's a great place to stop in and um, and have a cold one as well. There's, that's one of the great things about our country, isn't there? There's always a great story somewhere about someone doing something just that little bit different. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. All righty. Now, what can you tell us about the Lynchfield National Park? Yeah, Lynchfield is really special. It's um, it's actually become very accessible in the last few years. There uh, again, it, it, you sort of turn down to the south of of that peninsula way around Berry Springs there to get into the top of Lynchfield. There's half a dozen really popular waterfalls that you can go to down there as well as, you know, these really fascinating magnetic termite mounds, which are all aligned north-south so that they get the right amount of sun on them each day. I mean, how clever are those little fellas? We wouldn't be able to build a house north-south if we tried, but tiny little ants can figure it out, so there you go. The only thing I know is that north north is the top hemisphere and south is the bottom hemisphere, and I always have trouble working out which way's which when I'm out and about. <laughs> That's right. It can happen to all of us. So, yeah, Litchfield's great. I mean, it's, it's fifteen hundred square square kilometres thereabout, and it's getting more and more accessible every year. There, but even now, you can be you can be at say Robin Falls with free Wi-Fi at, within 
an hour and a half of Darwin, you know, in a Hyatt, in a two-wheel drive hire car. So it's amazing, like I say, just how close we are to wilderness up here and, and we sort of take it take it for granted once we live up here, I guess. But, yeah, um, Litchfield's really great place. There's a north to south four-wheel drive track through it, which is um, accessible sort of uh, maybe from May or June onwards. There's a couple of... Uh, river crossings you've got to do in the south end of it but it's a gorgeous trip and you can stop and camp along the way and see all these you know like there's um all our buffaloes and there's wild horses and of course dingoes and all, everything just out there in big numbers and you can just see them wandering around living their lives so Litchfield's really good people i think in general probably would rate Litchfield as one of the best places they've been to in the top end Okay, so tell us about the Adelaide River, and is it Bachelor out that way? Yeah, that's right. So it, it's a bit further south, is it? Of, of um... it, heading a bit further south, and, and we touched on Adelaide River there just then, uh, just before. Um, you know, the three hundred three bar and the Adelaide River in there with with the old buffalo from Crocodile Dundee stuff there. It's a great place to go. You can get a souvenir and get your photo taken with him. I can't remember his name. And then yeah, some really great war history there as well. With the you know one of these war cemeteries, I suppose that's beautifully manicured, and the effort and time that goes into keeping it in the condition that it is 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 really amazing. Um, it's the sort of stuff that you'll see in Normandy at D Day or something in France. You know, seeing all of these other ones over in Europe, and and I tell you, the Adelaide River War Memorial Cemetery is is amazing as well. And Bachelor sort of that opens you up into that true bush country where you um where you're sort of heading sort of south and west towards the Daly re- region and uh, there's some great things to do out there. There's a lot of skydiving and, and these sort of activities out there, gliding. Um, it's, it's, Bachelor is one of the main areas where all the local stations and, and operators of aeroplanes and choppers will bring their small planes and stuff in and, and get them all serviced and they run a lot of skydiving and all sorts of stuff out of there. There's a cool little butterfly farm in Bachelor as well and yeah, it's sort of a gateway to a bit more rugged sort of four-wheel driving stuff as you head further south and west along that coast as well. So, yeah, it's a it's a good little stepping stone. You get Bachelor and Adelaide River only half an hour apart and you can, you can do them both in, a, in sort of a day trip from Darwin. Okay, now I've got to ask, because you, you mentioned that the, out near the Daly River we do a bit of skydiving. Have you done skydiving? No, look, I haven't. And... It's something that I've always wanted to do. I've actually got a couple of clients that come up every year and they call it Jump Week or something where they, they'll do 100 jumps in a, in a week or something like this and, and they do them all over the top end. Um, obviously, you're trying to avoid landing in the puddle and uh, and on top of a saber-toothed gecko or a sleeping dingo or something like this. But, yeah, that skydiving over Darwin is very popular. There's a couple, couple of operators that do it for, for tourism stuff and um, – it's yeah, something that I'll definitely want to do. I'll, I'll better try it this, this wet season, I think, when I get a bit of time. Yeah, see, I, I have a theory, Glenn, and that is why should you jump out of a perfectly good aeroplane? <laughs> yeah. Well, it depends what, the, what, what you want to do on the way down, I suppose. But, yeah, I couldn't think of anything more exciting and exhilarating than, than jumping out over a crocodile-infested river and actually <laughs> not landing in it. <laughs> that would be great fun. Right, okay. Well, I'm going to make sure when when I get up to Darwin and we catch up, I'm going to make sure I know exactly where we're heading and what you've got planned each day before I agree to jump in the car with you, by the sounds of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I might spring it on you. That'd be funny, wouldn't it? Uh, may not be. <laughs> oh, dear. All right, so 
let's talk about some other areas that we can we can visit from Darwin. What about now? I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, and you can crucify me for it. Is it the the Tiwi Islands? Yeah, the Tiwi Islands. That's right. And there's you got it. Yep, you're almost a local. I think. <laughs> so um, the Tiwi Islands are, are directly north of Darwin, and and you can you can drive there in in say my boat on a good day in an hour and a half. It's about eighty kilometres away. Very very um, rich in cultural history, of course, of the local traditional owners and. And um, of course, all the the fishing and hunting and things that they do, they still retain a lot of their traditional practices. They're mad on their Aussie Rules footy, and they've got their own league over in the islands there. And the, the Aussie Rules footy grand final at, at Tiwi Islands is a major, major event every year. The the whole joint gets booked out for accommodation and um, charter flights and and boats travelling over there are booked out months in advance and there's a real buzz it's a it's a it's a great style of footy they play over there and and you see guys that come through into the afl that are from the tiwi islands like um uh anthony mcdonald tip and woody who, who's one of essman's absolute stars these days play a totally different brand of footy you know so it's a it's a, it's a really um great place to go and visit you can do you can actually do a really cool cultural tour over there from Darwin as a day trip, you, you go across on a big ferry and um, then you'll do some uh, Aboriginal art and dance and things like this. They put a feed on for you. You can buy some of the local art and, and um, some other things as well and then and then head back to Darwin in just a day. So that's a really great way, again, to just dip your toe in the water and then if you like it over there, you can go back over. There's some really great remote lodges on the island as well that do fishing and adventure tourism and, and you can go and do a week there next time. So, yeah, Tiwi's is great. We tend not to fish it too much with our fishing charters um, out of Darwin uh, because it is, um, you know, special land to the local guys up there. We we um, can, we leave it alone um, and, and let them sort of have the benefit of it. We've got plenty of other areas we can fish for our actual fishing charters. So, but it, it's definitely a great place to go and, and again, just a nice little day trip and, and back to your hotel room in Darwin that night. All righty. Now, this this football's got me a little bit, piqued my interest a bit. So if if you're a mad keen AFL fan and you wanted something a little bit different, it'd be worth coming up for the, for the grand final up there, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, our footy season up here runs over the, over the wet season, so in the southern summer. Um, and we do tend to get a lot of guys that will come up from south who are, who are good footy players in Victoria or whatever, and, and they'll, be get, they'll come up and get paid. They'll get a job and, um, and sort of uh, embrace the local culture and, and they become part of Darwin or it gets into them as well. So, yeah, the, the footy season up here, obviously we need everything to be green. So we have cricket season during the southern winter and footy season in the southern in the southern summer. So yeah, it's certainly something that I recommend people if they if they're coming up um, to, to certainly go to a game of footy. It's great, nice and warm, and you can um, drink cold beer and have have a bit of fun. Now let's talk about probably something that everybody associates with the Northern Territory: Kakadu National Park. Yeah, Kakadu is fairly special. Everywhere you look, there's some there's amazing photography of Kakadu. It's a bit more known for its escarpment country and gorges than Richfield is. Um, it, it, it's a little bit further away. It, uh, you know, 
by the time you get to the front gate of Kakadu from Darwin, you're looking at about two and a half hours and say three hours into Jabiru, which is the, the main township there. But once you're there, it's a good place to go and, and spend, say, two nights at least, I reckon. Uh, if you can do four or five nights there, great. You'll see a lot more there too. So it, it's a you'll stay in Jabiru um, at, at uh, a couple of the caravan parks and hotels in town there. Um, and, that, and, of course, then you're right on the doorstep of everything. So you've got um, rock art at, at your fingertips, um, amazing billabongs and, and some big tidal rivers as well where you can go out and see these great big saltwater crocodiles stacked up on particularly the crossing through into Arnhem Land at the East Alligator River. It's famous for big crocs right at the crossing there and, and really good fishing as well. And, and it's very common to see videos getting popped up on Facebook and YouTube these days of, of uh, crocodiles chasing people's fish while they're fishing off tails crossing. So that adds a little bit of an extra element of surprise to it. That's something that always has sort of uh, been at the back of my mind. I mean, I'm not a mad keen fisherman, but I, I enjoy doing a bit of fishing from time to time. And I certainly love the barramundi. How often do you lose your best barramundi to a crocodile? <laughs> well, surprisingly enough, it happens very, very rarely. I, I can probably count on one hand how many times it's happened to me, um, you know, in 10 years and over 10,000 barra caught on my boat. So um, it's not something that happens. I mean, it's always something we're aware of. and and um, we take precautions to avoid, I guess, and that's probably why it doesn't happen. The ones that we do lose fish to uh, are the sharks, particularly in some of the rivers, the um, the bull shark. Everyone knows about them over east as well. And and then of course when you're out on the out on the reefs, we get a, uh, there's some um, big numbers of of reef sharks as well. Which if you find a patch of fish and there's sharks around, then sometimes you get half of what you expected to pull up. <laughs> you just get the head, but you know we can't. When that happens, we just move spots and go and find, find some more because we're, we're very lucky up here. We haven't had too much pressure on the fishing, so not a huge issue. Next, I continue our chat with Cam about buying a second-hand van. And I suppose we should want to hope that when we go to inspect a van that the seller's got it connected to power and connected to water so that we can go around and check that what taps there are inside and the kitchen sink and if there's an ensuite that the shower and the vanity unit works and, you know, that the stove works, the microwave works, you'd want to check everything to make sure everything's working correctly. Oh, for sure, for sure. If they're not produced, especially, once again, depends on price range we're talking. If you're looking at a lower end, couple of thousand dollars private sale, you're unlikely to, to have everything in perfect working order. But if you are going to the higher bracket, then I don't think it's... It's too much to to expect that they have it set up. It really is what you're buying the van for. There's no point you buying a van where half the appliances don't work. So it's part of what your what your decision making is to buy the van. So really, if they're not willing to do it, they're not willing to to tell you the truth. I don't think. Yeah. And there's, there's other things we should, we should check that obviously the cupboard doors open and close and latch properly and drawers slide in and out of, of cupboards and that sort of thing properly? Yeah, my, yes. All the hinges, uh, and anything to do with opening and closing. O- open them all, close them all. You've got to check the whole van out, so take your time, go through, even even just have a look at the insides of the cupboards while you're doing it. You just, 
see whether there's any water damage while while you <laughs> in double up while you while you're checking out the doors. I'd also be uh, checking to see whether the van's got a smoke detector and a fire extinguisher. Two two of the things that I'd be suggesting that a, a van would need. Yeah, I, I think that's actually part of the legislation these days for vans is they've got to have a, a smoke detector, uh, a fire extinguisher. And I think in some cases too, you would need to check obviously on the type of van and, and your local government regulations, but it might even require a CO2 gas type um, detector in it as well. Possibly, you're right, yes. All right, so we've we've had a good poke around inside. We're fairly comfortable with everything we've seen. We might have seen a bit of damage here and there, but it, it's it's fixable and no major dam- reason to sort of go. Oh, I'm not buying this one. Mm. Let let let's have a talk about going outside the van now, and we'll we'll crawl around and look on all around the van. Um, obviously, you need to check that the, the chassis frame which is where the drawbar is attached to and where the van itself is built onto and you've got your axles and your tires and wheels and sort of thing we need to have a look around there what what sort of things should we be looking for in in those areas cam rust would be the main culprit obviously yeah just just have a good look at at, at all all the uh, all the connections as well uh, the the well Make sure anything that that is attached via a weld, be it a gas bottle holder up the front, or e- even to the point of checking the welds on the suspension and so forth. If if you're so keen to do so, just to climb under and have a look, because obviously that's one of the parts on a van that takes a cops a lot of stress. So yeah, just just having a look at where where all your suspension mounts attached to the chassis is a good point of reference. But, yeah, once again, rust is the, the main main concern, but also look for, look for dents and cracks and, and splits because, once again, you're, you're heading into fairly expensive territory if you're having to start fixing chassis. Now, when we talk rust, we're talking about metal and Metal is affected by rust. You can't completely stop metal getting rust. A little bit of rust pigmentation isn't necessarily a huge alarm bell, but obviously if there's flaking rust, that's a problem, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, mate. If it's just a little bit of discoloration, it's it's, it's usually the start of rust, but... and. As you said, until it gets flaky, it's usually fixable quite easily. So, like you said, if it's just discoloration, then that that can just be cleaned up with a wire brush and repainted with with rustproof paint. But, like you said, if if she's flaky and perhaps got a few few holes you can stick your finger through, that's not a good sign. You've <laughs> got real issues, and unless you're willing to spend the money to to fix that chassis, then that's almost a deal breaker. All right. Now, obviously, we've got to make sure that the um, t- 
tail lights and clearance lights that they look like they're in good condition and are all in one piece and firmly attached to the van. But we should check them that they actually work as well, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Once again, like we were saying before, the the seller should should be willing to have have everything ready for you to be able to check. If they don't have a vehicle that they can can connect to, then if your vehicle is prepared and ready for towing, then be worth asking to back your vehicle up and connect it. And that's one of the things you need to look at as well. Are, are the are the connections compatible with your car? You, you can have round pins or square pins. You can all uh, plugs, sorry, but you can also have variations within that. So, so making sure that it fits isn't isn't essential, but you'll need to know if you need to buy an adapter. Okay, so. It- Again, it comes to the point where I suppose if it's past our inspection and we're sort of thinking that we're going to buy it, this might be one of the other things that if it's mutually agreeable to the seller and the buyer that the van is then inspected by, you know, uh, a reputable repair organisation that perhaps can check that the electrics are all okay and uh, and that sort of thing uh, as well, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. It's it's hard to to be able to see every problem with with electrical. The uh, the old gremlins can can crop up here and there, but uh, yeah, if if you've got the ability to take it to some sort of auto electrician or even even to a caravan repairer to have it have it looked over, that that would most definitely be preferable because, as you well know, the electricals nearly all hidden away so very hard just to eyeball and see a problem well that's all for this episode remember to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you get future episodes thanks to avan to hire for their ongoing support to find out more on them or any of our other segments visit our website and facebook page till next time i'm shane have a safe journey